welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Well, good morning, all you Knock On freaks. I'm uh, bright and bushy-eyed this morning. It's about 3.45, but I've got a cup of coffee and and a copious amount of questions from all of you, and I'm trying to get through these. I'm losing sleep because I know I haven't got to all my private messages and emails, so for all of you out there who are wondering why the heck Dudley's being a dick and not sending me my message back well this is why i don't have time homies but i will get to it i'm gonna get to it i promise i always answer these myself so i'm working on it we got uh 20 more here to put a little chip in this massive wall of questions from all of you out there so we're gonna get after it But first, I wanted to just thank everybody out there for this amazing uh, swarm of interest over the new Knock To It release. Uh, Yesterday, we actually launched. They came in. uh, Sharon got, I mean, I I think I did two trips to the post office, uh, got all those pre-orders out, and then... We still had a few hundred that we put on, and they were literally gone within two hours. So it was absolutely ridiculous. It sounded like uh, the Southwest Airlines commercial with that ding going on on Sharon's laptop about every 30 seconds. It was ding, 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 and that's all you guys order and releases. Thank you very much. Uh, I've got some of my bestest of archery friends from all around the world that I haven't talked to in years and years and years since competition sending me messages and texting me asking me how to get one of those releases so here's the deal uh I ordered more I ordered more and every time I order them I have to write a ridiculous check to get them to make some but I am gonna make another batch and from what i'm told uh the where the, the way their production's running i'm only going to be able to slip these in so many times so i am going to have another run um i'm hoping i'm going to see some here within a few weeks and then by the sounds of it just from production uh after those ones come it may it's probably going to be after hunting season before the next batch comes in if it does so uh, once again, be ready. And uh, one thing that's cool is uh, Sharon is cool with shipping overseas. So for international customers too, um, she you can order, but you do have to email um, Sharon at info at knockonarchery.com off the website. When that time comes, you got to send in your email and you will have to pay shipping. But thank you once again. Uh, 
these new ones are awesome too by the way it's got the name on there I actually made a little tweak on the casing on the back of the casing it actually swoops back um, just because with the other uh, generation uh, with the heavier cocking spring it kind of has a little bit more pressure on the cocking lever so I actually changed the casing just a fuzz uh, just for cosmetics really but um, overall this thing is going gangbusters right now and um, even even some of my bestest of friends have called I was surprised yesterday Kevin Wilkie wanted one uh, my good buddy Zach Kurtzall wanted one and these are some dead eye shooters so thanks again everyone I appreciate it and uh, I'm going to jump right into questions here uh, we literally pulled 20 questions off of, I'm not sure which account, but we pulled them off and I'm going to go after it here and then, uh, I'm going to try to bang through some of my other questions, um, off my personal phone accounts. Uh, maybe on a podcast, I may just contact those people back direct, but I do always get back. I just have to get at the time of year where, I'm not busy, which I shouldn't say I'm not busy right now, but I'm actually enjoying some downtime, some chill time, and some grill time, and just actually been really having a lot of fun lately shooting archery with with friends, not necessarily uh, business people that I have to coach, it's friends that I want to coach. And I'm just enjoying myself. I'm really, really liking it right now. I'm liking, um, I'm liking trying some different stuff and trying stuff that I probably wouldn't personally want to use, but at least I'm doing some different things. Um, and it's been awesome. And also, if if by chance any of my uh, people that I've worked with on the Olympic teams are listening. Uh, from some of the different countries all around the world. Good luck. Uh, you know I'm rooting for you. And stick to the game plans that we've always talked about. And uh, for everyone else out there, especially the U.S. team, hey, go USA, man. Brady, get us a medal. Get yourself a medal. You need this thing. So, um looking forward to watching the games and uh i sure know that all the people at world archery have put in a tremendous amount of work to make sure the games go flawless for all the teams so congrats to everyone down there and we look forward to seeing you so first question here is from josh hughes he says hey john i just got into archery three months ago i got a few questions some uh maybe be far-fetched pun intended, <laughs> but what's your input on having two sites, one for field tips and the other for broadheads since they fly different? I have a five pin spot hog. I've also got the new Q80 Ultra. Uh, okay, so we're on several questions. So I guess just to stop on your first question, input on having two sites, one for field points and one for broadheads. That's certainly not a bad idea. Um, you know, if you 
several years ago, Sherlock actually made a really cool site. Uh, well, it was a long time ago because um, it was back when Steve Gibbs, the original founder of Sherlock, was still alive. And he made a cool, um, I'm pretty sure it was called the QD. It was a lethal weapon QD. And it was really cool because there were two screws and you could remove the two screws and your five pins literally came out in one piece and you could slide a new one in there. Um, but what that allowed you to do is it allowed you to have one set of pins that went into your site for, you know, maybe a faster bow or your 3d bow or your field bow. Um, or if you wanted to shoot like a, a faster arrow for, um, you know, maybe for like antelope or a Western hunt, but then you could, you know, have a different one that was for maybe a slower arrow or even, you know, he did it just for this. He had arrows that he used for target. And then he had arrows that he used for when he was shooting his broadheads. And that was kind of how that came to be. Now, unfortunately that site's not made anymore. Um, I've heard a few whispers that it, it may be, it may circulate back around, but that's definitely not confirmed. Um, but I personally do a similar thing. Um, right now, for example, I'm doing a lot of shooting with my hunting bow for fun. I'm doing a lot of practice. I'm getting reps in, um, you know, I'm going and shooting with a lot of friends and for quite a while there, what I did, because I was shooting field points all the time and I was doing a lot of practice, I actually had my regular um, Sherlock Supreme sight on my bow. And they had a bracket. I'm not sure if they still make it, but they had a little bracket where you could either unscrew and put your single pin scope on. Or you could put on the five pin uh, lethal weapon attachment. So um, I actually have the single pin that I put on there and it's just uh, a 42 millimeter scope and single pin. I shoot that for practice um, during the summer just so I can really focus on, um, you know, one pin, just getting reps in, really being able to judge my accuracy and, and really know how my bow is shooting. But then when I put my five pin sight on, the five pin sight is is definitely set up for field point or uh, for broadheads, and that is totally ready to go for hunting. So if I'm if I'm getting ready for hunting, I'm certainly practicing how I play. I'm certainly shooting something that is ready for my uh, broadheads, and you know it's not a bad idea. The main thing is you don't really want to have to have a site where you're having to really change your left and rights from one site to another. So if you're someone who already has a few different sites laying around or if you don't mind having both, then that's certainly not a bad idea because it's easy to take the two screws off the, um, the bow and just take the complete site off and put a new site on. If you're having to really... Um, move the scope around and your left or rights and things like that, then yeah, it starts to get a little bit more of a pain. But 
Um, and the other thing too is, you know, there's a lot of processes you can go through to try to make sure that your field points and broadheads are shooting closer together. Um, you know, obviously, uh, walk back tuning is a very, very good method for broadheads. Um, I think I've got an article about it. I'm not really sure. I, actually, I know that, um, I'm pretty sure that that method, well, actually, I don't know. I don't know if I did it during last season of uh, of the knock-on show or if it's on this season of the show, but I have talked about um, walk-back tuning, so I may try to see if I can dig that up and post it somewhere, um, check, my, check my social media pages, Facebook pages or whatever. I'll see if I can find something on that. Um, but there is ways that you can get your field points and broadheads to glue group closer together um, if you're struggling with that um, typically what will happen is you'll have to adjust your arrow rest in order to try to move your field points and your broadheads closer together for example if you're shooting and you sh you're able to shoot dead center with your field point and then you shoot your broadhead and it's shooting low um, in some cases and this there's a lot that factors into this. You need to make sure that you're shooting a, a, a fixed blade head or a broad head that actually has good flight characteristics. And assuming that it does and assuming that you're shooting enough fletching on your arrow to actually um, work well with that particular broadhead. If you're then, uh, your broadheads are continually shooting low, then that could be a good time to try to slightly raise your arrow rest. Um, you know, a lot of times, a lot of times if you have a very good shooting broadhead, you have a very stable arrow and your broadheads are still not grouping uh, very close to your field points, then sometimes that's an indication that it tells you kind of where your arrow rest is and that's why you know shooting a bullet hole through paper is a very good start um, because obviously if you shoot through paper and you have your fletchings coming through high that's telling you that as that arrow is leaving the bow the fletchings are high the point is down and if you have a steerable surface on the front of that arrow in other words a broadhead and that those fletchings are coming through high and the broadhead's pointing down, it's naturally going to want to plane down. Whereas with the field point, you don't have near the, the steering surface on the front of the arrow. So you actually um, have much less planing with a field point versus the broadhead. So there's kind of a lot that goes into that, to be honest with you. But a basic rule of thumb is... If as long as my fixed blades have the same grouping size as my field points, even if it is in a slightly different situation uh, position on the target, then what I do is certainly sight in my hunting bow to my broadheads. Um, and if you're the same as me on that, then and you want to do a lot of shooting with the field point then yeah, swapping out sights is not a bad idea. Um, and I guess just to kind of uh, expand on what I just said a little bit more about the grouping of the two. 
So I've had bows in the past that are tuned really, really well, but for whatever reason, um, the way the particular fixed blade broadhead and the arrow that I'm shooting, they just don't want to hit with the field points. And, you know, that's just aerodynamics that happens sometimes. But if I shoot at 50 or 60 yards and I'm shooting a two-inch group with field points, and then I'm also able to shoot a two-inch group with my broadheads, but they may be shooting two or three inches to the right or, you know, two or three inches low or whatever, then... I just, you know, I'm not going to, as long as my grouping is consistent between the two types of, you know, tips, then I'm just going to sight in with the tip that I need and I'll be happy with that. Um, I'm not necessarily hung up on the fact that the two don't group together. There's certain broadheads that are certainly going to give you a better chance of having everything grouped together. Um, but for the most part with the bows that we're shooting nowadays and the speeds that we're shooting and everyone's trying to shoot really small fletching, this just really starts to get harder and harder and harder to accomplish. Um, there's so much that goes into a fixed blade broadhead, um, which is why for the most part, I'm, I'm very, very pro expandable. Um, I think a lot of people can be more accurate with a broadhead that they can take out of a package and that they're more likely to hit by their field point. And I think that a lot of people don't spend the time um, shooting their field point or shooting their their heads and seeing how they hit compared to the field points. So, if you're able to go out and know that you can screw a Rage Hypodermic on and you're going to be much closer to your field tips than any other uh, fixed blade head that you put on, then right away I'm going to argue that it's probably a better head for you to shoot simply because you're more likely to hit what you're aiming at with it. Um, so I hope that helps. I'm going to see, let me read through here. You said... Uh, I've seen the new QAD Ultranoc 2 Micro. Is that even worthwhile for accuracy or consistency? Um, I've heard in the podcast that the limb-driven rest is better than a cable-driven rest. Um, how do I go about swapping to a limb-driven? Um, so you got tons of questions here, but I'll just I'm just gonna say this. So in regards to limb-driven rest, which means the cord that comes off to the rest that either holds the the arrow prongs down or in some cases um, it'll hold them up but uh, if it's going to your cables as you draw back the cables are going to pull it up um, if it goes to your limb it's going to be holding it down and as you draw your bow back and the limbs bend your arrow rest actually goes up but i'm a big fan I'm personally a, a bigger fan of a limb-driven system. Um, for whatever reason, and I know that a lot's changed because the newer style, like I know the newer style QADs, um, they've changed the speed so that the arrow rests are getting out of the way much faster than some, uh, some of the original models. But um, 
I found years ago I was having trouble tuning one particular bow. I was always getting a high tear through paper, which I hear on some bows here this past year. I've seen a lot of people in their um, in their social media feeds saying, how do I get rid of some of these high tears? One cause can be if the arrow rest is not coming down in time, your fletchings will hit that rest. And in that case, that that really is a bow that is either you have to see if the rest that you have has a way to either change the spring to have more tension to where that rest can get out of the way faster or you need if it's um, a cable driven rest you need to try to make sure that you have the length of the cord going from the rest to your cables that length of your cord is what determines how fast or how slow that rest comes up as you draw your bow. On the QADs, when you set up your rest, when you have the rest on the bow and you draw back, if you look at the rest where you take your thumb and you flip it down, there's actually two white lines on that rest. And what they want you to do is when you draw that bow and you're holding it full draw, your um, cord going to your cable should be adjusted at a length to where those two white lines are perfectly aligned when your bow is at full draw. If by chance your um, the actual part that you use your finger to cock or hold up, if that white line is lower than the white line that's actually right next to it, which is um, on the arrow rest itself, then what that's telling you is you've actually got your cable tight or too tight so that it's over-rotating that rest, which means it's actually lifting that rest up very quickly during the draw cycle. Um, otherwise, you know, if it's the other way around, if if it's not hitting the white line, then in many cases, it's not going to actually stay locked up. But the length of that rest, you know, depending on the speed of your bow, um, if you're having troubles, having the two white lines match is what they call for. But you may need to slightly change the length of that cord so that your rest is going down sooner than what they actually call for. And you can do that by changing the length of it. You know, that was years ago. I, I tried to fall away during my target competitions. Um, I really like the characteristics of a fall away rest because it allows you to shoot the most versatile fletching arrangement that you want. You can shoot micro diameter shafts with. Um, fletching on there and not have to worry about clearance like for example on a blade rest on a launcher blade um, if you're shooting like an x10 or a pro field arrow they're very very small in diameter so depending on the type of vein that you choose and how wide the actual shoe of that vein is where it attaches you might not have very much clearance on there and sometimes it gets tough to shoot with the launcher style rest just because you get contact. But if you have a fall away wet rest, you're able to avoid any contact at all because obviously the arrow rest is out of the way. 
But back then, what I found was the length of that cord had so much to do with how the bow shot that if you got it right, I believe the fallaway actually outperformed my launcher blade rest. However, when I traveled a lot and temperatures change and strings and cables change just from the amount of travel and heat and cooling um, in your bow case on the airplanes and different climates, um, I just personally didn't really like having that as something that could possibly change. So I ended up going back to my launcher blade. But I like the limb-driven system simply because for whatever reason they the rest is always down and the limbs are so consistent um it just the limb the limb driven style rest that i've used and that i like um i've actually i'm trying um i'm trying one right now from aae uh that i've been shooting a lot and they make a really cool one i'm trying to think of the name and i know uh, Greg Poole is going to punch me in the face for not remembering the name. I know one of them was the drop zone, which was actually, I know the drop zone um, went directly to um, the cable, whereas the other one, um, wait, I got that wrong. I'm pretty sure I got that wrong. Um, and hey, it's early in the morning, people. You have to cut me some slack right now, but... Yeah, the let's see here. Um, okay, the DOA is one. Okay, the DOA is the one that goes to the cable. So the other one, the pro drop, is the one that goes to my limb. Um, that one's been been pretty good. Um, I've set up the. I actually set up the Hamski rest. Um, I'm trying all kinds of different air rests right now. Um, so I've done a lot of playing. I plan to play around with the new QADs a little bit. But uh, I actually put the new Hamski rests on Joe Rogan's bow simply because um, we communicate so much. And I'm working on his bows, that I and I'm the one that's actually setting them up and, and shooting them. So I kind of using them as a judge. Um, but you know, we've done good with that, with that rest. Um, I'm doing really good on with this pro drop right now. I like that. Um, what I like about it, I can tell you is, um, that it's actually got a real steel cable, um, instead of a synthetic cable that you take to the limb. Uh, I think that's a pretty cool idea as well. Um, it's extremely fast, definitely getting out of the way. So you don't have to worry about high tears. You don't have to worry about it not being fast enough. Um, and also, you know, I've shot trophy taker smackdowns for years and, you know, and liked them. So those are the ones that I, that I like, I've had good luck with. And, you know, I think to specifically answer that question, the, I'm just looking back sorry i personally think the limb driven is a better system that's my opinion um, i think it's more consistent i think it's less to think about um, but in saying that 
the QADs are really, really foolproof. And for the average person that's trying to set up their bow and not really have to get too technical, um, those QADs are a great rest too. I mean, I know um, Hoyt and Fuse sells a ton of them. People do really well with them. And uh, I think it's still a good rest, but I'm personally shooting limb-driven systems. Uh, next question here is from Nick. Looks like Dunifer. Um, hey John, love all your videos. I had a quick question trying to get a surprise shot with a thumb release and I started pulling fast through the shot, but it almost feels like punching it that way. When I go slow and pull through the shot, it makes my holding arm move around a lot. My question is how fast do you pull through the shot? So once my finger, once I go through my shot process and my finger actually moves to the trigger and I am, you know, engaged on the trigger and starting to pull through, honestly, it happens very, very fast. Um, and I, well, I shouldn't say very fast, but it certainly happens in about, I'd, I'd say seven seconds. Um, I wouldn't... I wouldn't worry about if you feel like you're punching, that's one thing. Um, if you feel like because you're pulling through so fast that it seems like punching, I guess that kind of sounds like two different statements. Um, I would certainly think that if you're able to take your bow from your side, raise it to the target, draw, anchor, look through your peep, shoulders good. You center your peep sight and your scope, move your scope to the target, get your thumb on the trigger, start to aim, and then pull all the way through. Once that happens, um, you know, my shots take about 12 to 14 seconds. Um, and, you know, I'm pretty, pretty confident with uh, that being really, really good timing. As we're talking here, I'm actually going back and trying to look. Um, I know that earlier this year, I posted, um, I mainly posted it just so that people could actually watch my rhythm and timing. So I posted a video um, of me practicing in my winter archery range and uh, for that you're able to actually see my timing my rhythm and everything as I'm shooting so um, trying to find it here so you can it's on the knock on archery YouTube channel um, and there's one okay it's actually called John Dudley Archer 300 round um, it's just me shooting a 300 round in my garage. Um, so that's it. Watch that, watch my rhythm, and you can kind of see how that plays out. The main thing is you want to be able to put your thumb to that trigger and keep your thumb in one position and know that you're never moving that thumb as you're pulling through the shot. If you feel like you're contracting your hand in any way, then that's a sign that, yeah, you could certainly be punching. Um, I actually tried to, to look um, 
Antoine had told me when he dug these questions out that uh, about this one, we tried to see if we could find a picture of you shooting so I could see if I could decipher that, and I wasn't able to do it. So um, my shot, once I engage that trigger, probably for sure five to seven seconds, I bet, of aiming and actually my finger on that trigger and going through my motion very similar to a recurve shooter you know you don't see a recurve shooter sitting there and aiming you know once they get the pin on the target and start that expansion and start pulling through that shot it's one continual motion it's uh the more you aim in my opinion the more you compress and the more you start to kind of collapse and everything you're waiting instead of being active and dynamic and i'm just a a huge believer in um, activity and being dynamic and actually the other day when my buddy ben was here at the house and we were training a little bit um, and we might have talked about this in the last podcast there was a time where i was just working with him on the timing and his timing was so good and so fast um, you know, for example, Sharon and, and little dud, they both shoot, um, evolution releases all the time. Um, and the shots when you're not worried about where you're hitting and you're just letting off the safety and pulling through the timing just gets to be real repetitive and, and pretty quick to be honest with you. But then when you start to really, especially with people, the further the target is away, like I noticed this with Sharon and Harry, the further they try to shoot, now they're trying to do a lot of shooting at like 40 yards, um, the length of their shot gets much, much longer. And I'm really trying to coach them through the fact, listen, I know it's further, but you have to still pull through at the same rate as what you do all the time at 20 and 30 just because it's further, don't slow down that process. You need to still be okay with the fact that the target's further away, so you're going to see a little bit more movement, but you still have to pull through the same in order to get those arrows to come together. And that was the case with Ben. We did a lot of um, blank bail shooting where I was not having him have a sight on at all. He was just looking through the peep at a spot that we had on the target and he had great rhythm and timing. As soon as we, well, we actually put a sight on his bow after a while. He had the same rhythm and timing. So then all of a sudden I backed him up to 20 yards with the sight on his bow. And all of a sudden it took twice as long for the shot to go off. And he was like, yeah, that's, I don't know why, but that shot just didn't feel good. And I said, well, it's because it took way too long. You were aiming, you weren't pulling through. And I kind of explained exactly what I just explained now. And I'm like, listen, you get your finger either, you know, either take your finger off the safety or if you're shooting a trigger, put your finger on the trigger. Keep, you know, have a little bit of preload on the trigger with your finger. But at that point, your finger needs to remain in that place and the pull should come from the you know, from the back muscles pulling through and pulling that elbow towards something behind you until it fires. And that's going to, that's going to make everything feel a lot better. But, you know, certainly because it goes fast doesn't necessarily mean that you're punching it, but you need to be conscious of what we just talked about. Uh, Next question here is from Cliff Collins. 
Uh, Cliff says, John was introduced to you about nine months ago. Uh, can't stress how much your podcasts have helped. Thanks, Cliff. Appreciate that. Uh, I have a question about Easton ACCs. Who makes weights to add to the front? Um, hey, that's a freaking awesome question. Uh, if there's any machinists out there that specialize in turning down brass, I would love some freaking 50 grain brass inserts for, um, for a regular Easton ACC. I've been asking them for this forever. And, you know, Muzzy actually used to make some heavy inserts for that fit certain size ACCs, but not all size. Um, but I can tell you like from a hunter's point of view, an ACC 349, a 360, or a 371 are probably the top three sizes. And I've been begging Easton for freaking two decades to make 50 grain brass uh, for an Easton ACC because I love that arrow. Um, so if any of you out there are handy with uh, making match grade uh, inserts on a on a turner, then give me a ring because I'll freaking shoot them. Um, then you go on to say, really like the new Muzzy Trocar uh, fixed blade broadheads, but they only come in 100 grain, and I like the heavier weight for elk or bear, so how can I add more weight? Um, well, it gets kind of complicated. What Some people, what you could do on a standard insert, you can either, you know, some, some people can... The problem is the inserts for the ACCs are extremely light. It's not like a hit insert, but like a hit insert, you can almost double up the inserts where you push one in in front of the other so that you're doubling it just because there's two stacked in there. Um, with with the ACC inserts, they're extremely light. They're I mean, they hardly weigh anything. You'd have to put so many of them in there. Um, I'm actually shooting an ACC right now with a standard insert, and I do really like the Muzzy Trocar. Um, I'm a firm believer in if I do shoot a fixed blade broadhead, I like a fixed blade broadhead that is small and compact. Um, I don't like shooting the heavier fixed blade broadheads. I would much rather have heavier inserts, but then still shoot the the brought the fixed blade heads that have good flight characteristics which the trocars really do um i like those a lot they're you know the trocars are definitely one of my one of my favorites right now um and it's funny this actually is a um joe and i were shooting together in chicago a few weeks ago and we actually the purpose was one, a little bit of training, but also we did some testing with ballistic gel with a couple different, uh, broadheads and different things like that. Um, but most importantly, relating to this question, we, I had an ACC that weighed about 420 grains and I'm shooting in the mid sixties for poundage. Joe is shooting in a, a full metal jacket, 500 grain arrow virtually, um, with, a uh, 81 or 82 pound bow and the penetration difference was night and day different um certainly my what i was shooting is is had enough power and, and you know is works really well um actually right after i left there i went down to florida and i shot some 
some big pigs literally right on the shoulder like big plates um very dense hard plates um i wasn't passing all the way through um i was kind of you know passing through both sides but not a complete pass through and you know everything everything worked the shot was lethal it was a lethal shot everything worked but you know obviously with paths throughs you just have so much more um you just have a better blood trail you have much more sign to follow and there's certainly benefits to that you know if something's just lodging in there and you're not able to have um a good trail then sometimes it could get really really tough um but the difference in penetration like i can i could tell you um we had about 18 inches of ballistic gel and it was made in a way to where it was the width of an elk one way or if i stood it up vertically it was the width of a whitetail another way and um what i'll do is i haven't had a chance to actually do that but i might post we did some little videos while we were doing that i might try to get those out there here pretty soon and let you take a look at that for yourself um let's see here you said um, well, I guess in relation to that, you know, if you're wanting at this point, if you're wanting heavier insert for that broadhead, 25 grains is probably not going to do much for you. Just, I mean, I don't think 25 grains is going to do all that much. Um, I think if you're talking the difference between a, a 420 grain arrow and a 500 grain arrow, that's a big difference. Um, but 25 grains, uh, isn't as much. So a lot of times that minimal is more to do with having good front of center and having an arrow that maybe has a little bit less wind drift or might just group better because it has more front of center. Um, in that case, I think you may benefit, but just from the purpose of, um, you know, wanting to have 25 grains more, that's not going to make that big a difference for you. Um, in that case, you may just be better. If you are worried about it, you may be better off just trying an arrow that allows a brass insert right now, which, uh, you know, is going to be anything that takes a, a hit system. Um, or I know that they make brass uh, in an H insert. Now, if you have an old um, ACC, the old Pro Hunting Series, what was cool about those is it didn't take a standard. What was cool about the Pro Hunters is the internal diameter was the same for all the spine sizes. So, and it actually took an H, an H insert. So, Easton does make brass inserts for an H because that's what goes in. Um, the torch and the hex arrow so if you happen to have an old um, some old acc pro hunting series uh, you can put brass in those and that's actually what t-bone shoots um, t-bone was talking to me the other day and we were on this subject and he was telling me that um, he still has a bunch of old pro hunting series that he's still using just because of the fact he can put brass inserts in there. So, um, and maybe, 
maybe uh, I might get T-Bone on here one of these days so that we can talk about some of this stuff. Uh, next question here is from Michael DiNapoli. Not sure where you're from, buddy, but definitely sounds like an Italian name. Uh, John, great hog. Love the podcast and always finding it entertaining and educational. Quick question. I'm curious about the effects of limb-resistant uh differences and tiller tuning in regards to overall bow accuracy potential and on the ability of the shooter to hold the bow and shoot accurately okay so this is this question and it's going on for quite a while here so this question is going to get pretty deep if you're like a new beginner listening to this you're going to be like what in the crap is this guy talking about but if you're joe rogan right now and you're freaking geeking out on this stuff you're getting ready to text your buddy later and start asking him more questions and wanting to check all this stuff and overthink everything but anyway he's talking about he's talking about tiller and he's talking about um how much your limbs actually flex and how he's getting ready to go into detail about is there inconsistencies in the amount of flex your limbs have? And if so, you know, how are you going to measure that? And then how are those differences and variables going to affect your aiming? So I'm going to keep reading, but I'm pretty sure this is where he's going to go. Um, You mentioned that the manufacturing techniques nowadays are so good that having bow limbs that are mismatched is unlikely in most cases and not likely to contribute to measurable differences in accuracy and tuning. However, potentially, there could be differences in limb pockets, limb riser contact, or spacers, or just limb bolt tightness. If there are any differences in limb resistance to travel between the upper and lower limbs for any reason are the primary causes of inaccuracy induced by unlevel knock travel difficulty in holding the pin steady on the target due to pulling harder on the top or bottom limb or both okay this is only halfway through this question so i'm going to stop right there and explain on this a little bit so if we go back in time a lot of the original archery limbs were made out of wood. So people started to realize, and this is the case even now with um, traditional bows, your tiller is pretty much, or tiller as a reference anyway, is how much each limb is flexing. And back when limbs were made of wood, there would it would be really difficult to find limbs that were evenly matched. And that's why, like, even today with the recurve bows and the Olympic-style recurve bows, a very um, reputable company, Hoyt, um, actually still builds the limbs in pairs. Now, there's a lot of different processes for limbs. I can tell you right now, there's two processes that I've been part of, and both of them are different. Both of them are very, very accurate, but they're different. But arguably, there's there still leaves the ability for maybe for one limb to not be the same as the next. So let me talk about those. When I worked at Matthews, 
Um, all of our limbs were actually purchased in, we actually purchased glass from a very good company that made some of the best glass in the world, fiberglass. And those limbs at the time were made with two different types of glass, but they came in a plate about the size of a full-size laptop. That plate would then go to a water jet where a water jet would shoot a beam of water that was literally like the same diameter as a laser beam and it would cut the limbs out of this glass plate which was already made and compressed and completely dry um, with the glass specifications of the limbs but it would cut out five limbs out of one plate then from there those limbs um, would get the axle holes drilled through and then they would also go into like a time saver machine which actually when you put them on this plate and you put them through the time saver machine the time saver machine is almost like this huge sanding machine that you adjust to a certain height to where it sh it literally shaves off a certain thickness of glass and as it's shaving that glass off obviously the more glass you take off the lighter those limbs are going to be so even though there's five different limbs they're all going through the same thing and once they come out the other side they actually go into a tub and then they they get put into this little fixture. You slide them in, and it's this fixture that's made just like a bow uh, riser. You put them in there, and you hit this button, and a robot arm comes, and it pushes on that limb, and it has um, it has a, a extremely accurate measurement that actually flexes that limb and gives you a flex number. And in order to pass protocol, that flex number needs to be pretty much within one digit. Um, so there is super minor diff potential for differences um, in that limb to st still be within spec, but certainly not anything that a human could sense um, or that could affect your accuracy. If the limb was under that specification it would then get put into a bin to where it would then get shaved down to the next lower size uh, weight so really the potential for there being variance back then would be mainly in the resin that would be in the glass um, if the resin thickness was different then the flex of that glass could certainly be different now that was um, that was the process that we had at Matthews. Um, everything was flexed on you know with a digital flexor. Um, it had to be within code. Had to be within spec. The spec was very tight tolerances. That's why even then when I was there and I was shooting and I was working with a lot of professional shooters that would call into Matthews at the time. Um, and they would say, uh, my limbs aren't the same. And the limbs I was confident are the same. Now, what potentially could not be the same would be the plastic inserts that 
go into the actual limb pockets. If the plastic inserts that go into the pockets um, are different, then certainly those limbs can vary a little bit because if you look at a bow limb, it attaches to the tiller bolt, then it's going to come back and it's going to be resting on a piece of plastic that actually, as it's being drawn and flexed, that's where all the pressure is really. Um, we call that little thing the limb rocker. Okay, The rocker is on, in most cases, on the pocket. So you can have a variance in rockers. You can also change the poundage on your bow or really dramatically change the poundage on your limbs by changing your rockers. If you have a thicker rocker, you will increase poundage very fast. Now in the Matthews, at the time, there was a plastic sleeve that slid into the limb pocket. And if that sleeve didn't seat in there more, then yes, potentially one limb could flex more than the other. Now, if I fast forward to Hoyt, their process is, um, in my opinion, a, it's a very impressive process. It's a process that, um, personally, I think for time, like the amount of time and maybe the amount of bows that you can push through a factory, are you're probably limiting yourself. Um, however, their response to me on that, um, just because obviously I have a I have a background in manufacturing, so I've seen all these processes. So when I walk through when I walk through a bow company or an arrow company or anything like that, it, you know I don't really get geeked out about it. I just kind of look at it and think, mm, is that a good way to do it, or would I do it different, or you know I kind of think of it that way. But um, Hoyt has an amazing process to the end consumer. And this is a big reason. Um, I normally don't go crazy on why why I shoot or why I like something. Um, but I'm just going to tell you, when I left Matthews and I left, you know, I pretty much left Matthews, um, made the decision to leave. And I, at that point, did not really know uh, what I wanted to shoot. Um, I know I was still going to shoot a bow. I did not know what I know that, um, I was pretty much scheduled to talk with Hoyt, PSE and Bowtech. And, um, and this is 10 years ago now. So, um, I ended up deciding to leave and drive and hunt out West and as I was going to drive through what the West over a course of two months and hunt, I was going to visit all three um, places and talk with them about whether or not I might want to work for someone else on my own terms. When I went to Hoyt, it was the first place that I went to. And once I saw that process and I saw how they look at things from an engineering and a destruction point of view. I literally, I called and canceled my other places because I knew that that is where I wanted to be. And honestly, that is when I stopped traveling with two bows. It's when I had confidence, much more confidence in the equipment because the way Hoyt builds limbs 
your limbs on your bow are literally from the exact same piece of fiberglass. All those layers, all of them that are built into that plate, those limbs stay together for their life. Unless they go to a dealer and the dealer removes them for the package and somehow mix matches them, then I can tell you, your limbs on your bow, those are from the exact same virgin piece of glass. Those four have been together since the beginning. They've been together as they got, you know, when they got compressed, when they got sanded, when they got drilled, when they got um, powder coated, when they got film dipped, when they went in a package. All those limbs have been together. And if you break one, and if you know, you're going to get four more, and it's going to be all quadruplets. And um, and I can tell you with the recurve limbs, it's the same thing. They're, you know, they're made in pairs. They stay together for life. And it's pretty much one more, um, you know, this is, this is just a reason why for me, I see it as, you know, from a manufacturing point of view, that may be slightly slower than just ramping out, you know, thousands and thousands of plates where you can just cut out five at a time put them in a box, flex them, and they all go out. And, you know, the chances of those limbs being a true, you know, one plate matching up to a limb that's on from that exact same plate down the road uh, is, is pretty minimal. But I do know that from Hoyt's point of view, you are literally having quadruplets on your bow all the time. So... That's why I personally say, and I know also my guys at Hoyt in the engineering team, those dudes, I've shot with them, I competed with them, I've hunted with them. Um, these guys, I mean, these are guys that if I'm hung up on something, I'll call and be like, okay, dude, tell me if I'm seeing something wrong here, but this is what I'm seeing. And they're the people that I, you know, there's times where if I feel like I'm hung up on something and I want confirmation, they're the ones that I'm going to tell my problems to. And I can tell you that their limb pocket systems are awesome. And they've always been simple. They've been repetitive. And, you know, I know that this has been an extremely long explanation to get around to the fact of, you know, can there be variances in these limb pockets and uh, risers and maybe limb bolt configurations to where one limb is not exactly the same as other? Yes, there can be. Do certain bows make that less possible than others? Absolutely. Um, now, I still don't believe, as minor as they are, I don't believe you can feel that. Now, I believe if you have one limb bolt backed out more than another um, to a certain degree, you can certainly feel it. Um, I know that does um, knock travel affect some of this? You know, does knock travel? I don't, I've never personally seen, um, you know, your knock travel would have to move so much to where you're, you're, literally pulling from another limb 
Um, but one thing that's really cool, um, and I guess I haven't tested this on the newer cams, but with Hoyt, one thing that's always been the case, like on a cam and a half system, is um, if you have a cam and a half system in time, and I know this was the case on the original ones, I guess I haven't tried here recently, but um, a good buddy of mine, Darren Cooper, was part of um, part of the process. Well, I think Darren and and uh, Jason Fogg were both the, the people that patented or helped design and, and are on the patent with Hoyt, I think, on the cam and half system. But you could grab the string in several different places on the string and draw it back, and, and it would still be in time. If you had your cams perfectly timed, you did not have to draw the bow from the same string position and that cam would stay in time. Now some bows, especially two cam bows, some of the hybrid cam bows, that is not the case. If you have your bow timed, you have to time it from where you're pulling from. If you then replace your string and change your knock point uh, position up or down and pull it back again, it may not be in time. So, uh, and I know that if you change your limb bolts, you know, your bow's not going to be in time either. You'll have to redo that. But um, he goes on to say here, I'm just looking at this question. He goes on to say, if this is suspected or one wants to check, is measuring knock travel on a drawboard sufficient? Um, and no, it's not because if you want to, um, just so you know, Michael, if you want to truly measure knock travel, then you're going to have to have a machine that, well, one, you're going to have to go to um, a metal shop and you're going to have to make a machine that, or a fixture that will actually hold a bow perfectly. When you measure knock travel, you don't measure it by, by, letting allowing the bow to pivot in the center you actually have to f hold the riser in a fixed position out by the outer edges almost the same as what a bow press would and then what you have to do is you have to to have the ability to your have your pull cord pull from a position that is exactly even with um with your um your arrow rest hole and you pull from that position and the pulling cord must pull in a perfectly straight line in order for this to truly measure um, knock travel a lot of people just try to put it on a board and draw it back and that really isn't the case you have to if you really want to measure how a cam is actually moving and and um and doing that then you need to do that now when we used to do it what we would do is we had a machine that did have a perfectly straight line exactly straight it was um 100 at um a 90 degree angle um to the bow riser when it was in a fixed position and then as it got pulled back there was actually um a little fixture that held the string and as it pulled back there was actually a marker that was going down through that point exactly where it was held and it was just drawing right on um, that line so you could actually see how the knock traveled up or down and um, actually 
there's differences there in opinion too. For example, um, I know that for a long time at Matthews, um, we did a lot of marketing on zero knock travel. We marketed zero knock travel and it, you know, honestly, it was pretty much a marketing ploy because, um, the consumer, it made sense for them to hear that when you drew a bow back, if the knock never moved from point A to point B, that it would shoot perfectly straight. Um, however, what I've found since in a lot of ultra slow motion photography and, and videography is that when a knock does not actually have a sense of direction, it's more likely to allow that arrow to almost float on the rest because it's going in a perfectly straight line and there's no pressure being applied to the arrow rest. So with that thought, and I know Hoyt's on the same wavelength because Hoyt actually designs their cam to have a slight rise in the knock travel. And that way, as you shoot, it forces the arrow to ride the arrow rest and it allows the arrow to put pressure on the rest and and go all the way through. Um, it's really pretty cool. Like when I used to, um, on some of my old zero knock travel Matthews, if I would do some like um, foot spray on the arrow shaft and I would shoot it, I could actually see where the arrow would leave it would leave the rest, come back on the rest, leave the rest, come back on the rest. There was like multiple contact points. Whereas with my Hoyts, it I can literally ride that arrow rest, especially on the launcher blade, I can ride that arrow rest all the way through the cycle. And the consistency is much greater that way. So when it comes to unlevel knock travel, I would you know, you're getting into a lot of topics here, but the unlevel knock travel, I actually like having a little bit of knock travel because it does allow the arrow to have a consistent direction instead of giving it the ability to pretty much float on a perfectly level plane, so to speak. Um, you say here to continue on this question. Also, I heard mention of looking at D-loop positions after the shot with regard to assessing for limb tension symmetry. If the D-loop comes straight off the back of the string after the shot, then the limbs are exerting similar pressure. If the D-loop is angling upward, the top limb is pulling it harder. If it's angling downward, the bottom limb is pulling harder. In either case, it has been suggested that the limb bolts are to be adjusted until the limb resistance is equal on both sides, and therefore the pull is from directly behind you. Any thoughts? Well, I've given you a lot of thoughts on that, dude. It sound I could be wrong, but it sounds like you've been listening to someone's podcast that just wants to have something to talk about and probably doesn't know what he's talking about and doesn't really know how much engineering has actually gone into this thing. Um, most people, and I stand behind this, most people cannot tell the difference unless you have a major difference in how your limb pockets are fitting on the bows, which I just think as an industry, we're like beyond that point now. Um, there's a lot of good bows. Um, Bowtech's got a good bow. 
Hoyt's got a good bow. Matthews has a good bow. Bear Jennings has a good bow. There's a lot of really good bows going right now. And, you know, there's PSE makes a good bow. I've got friends that shoot really good with all that stuff. And, you know, I can tell you that, you know, this minor stuff like this is not anything that should freak anybody out. You know, you're not going to be able to tell. Take your limb bolts, tighten them all the way down. Make sure you back them out evenly. You know, if you if you don't want to shoot the amount of poundage that's on your bow, tighten your limb bolts all the way down. Make sure they're all the way tight and then back them out in even turns. Now, I've talked about this in the past. If by chance you are, uh, Michael, if you're worried about how a bow is holding, um, then I can tell you, you can affect how your bow holds. If you keep everything consistent, if you keep your stabilizer positions and all that consistent, you can affect how your bow holds and how your bow aims more by adjusting your draw length, fine-tuning your draw length, which is why some people say their bow aims better if they, you know, hey, I, I took my limb bolts out two turns and my bow holds way better. Well, it probably holds better because you've got less weight and your draw length is now longer because you've backed your limb bolts out. Um, so adjusting your limb bolts is good for poundage and it's a good for fine-tuning. You know, you can fine-tune your draw length if you want by using your limb bolts. If you tighten them in a little bit, you're going to shorten it. If you loosen them out a little bit, you're going to lengthen it. But as you tighten them in, you're going to increase poundage and shorten it. As you back them out, you're going to increase draw length and decrease poundage. Um, and then I guess here on the last part of your question, uh, trying to, th oh, about the D loops and how the, you know, knowing what's happening with your knock travel because of the D loop. Listen, you're probably, you're probably not. If you have a bow that's set up with a wacky, uh, knock travel, that is built into the eccentrics of that cam system and that cam design. Um, if you're having your loop go crazy directions, this can be from a ton of things. Um, to say that that loop is only going those ways because of the knock travel, in my opinion, is kind of foolish. Um, because if you have speed knocks on the top but not on the bottom, you're going to get your D loop to go a different direction. If you have knocks on the bottom and not the top, it's going to go a different direction. If you're shooting a string stopper or like a stealth shot and you have it hitting with too much pressure on the string before the arrow's actually leaving the string, um, then, you know, that thing, that loop is going to be affected a certain way. If your facial pressure is different, um, same thing. It's also going to change that. Not to mention how your release is actually hooking on your string, the way that that release opens. If you have a release that you're turning very vertical and when it opens, it's opening so that that string is coming down out of that, all that stuff starts to affect that, man. There's so many variables out there that literally I've probably lost half my uh, listeners right now having to like get this far in depth. So if you're a beginner um, listening to the podcast for the first time, I feel bad for you. 
um, because you're just like freaking knock travel. What the hell? Uh, yeah, well, it goes deep. The rabbit hole's deep. So there's people out there like Michael that they're geeking out. They wanted to have some sophisticated questions thrown out there and see if they could derail me. I'm good. That's my thoughts on that and uh, and the processes. But listen, we're at we're well over an hour right now, so I'm going to wrap this podcast up and I'm going to jump in. I'm going to keep going because I'm I think I've got some flow going right now, and uh, I'm going to keep going on this. So. We're going to to be continued for podcast 70. But until then, thanks everybody for listening. And uh, all you newbies to archery, I'll, uh, I'll be less technical on the next podcast. So make sure you tune back in. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate it. Check you later. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. Knockonarchery.com. <laughs>